Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. We are very pleased to welcome Professor Jill Tarter to the University's Public Lecture Series tonight. I would like to thank the Science Foundation for Physics at the University for making Professor Tarter available to talk tonight while she is in Sydney for this year's Professor Henry Messel International Science School, part of the International Year of Astronomy. The lecture tonight will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have two microphones set up at the bottom of the aisles here, so please come down to the microphones with your questions. And we ask you to keep your questions clear and concise as the lecture is being recorded for the university's website. The next Sydney Ideas event will be on a very different theme. Next Tuesday, we present a special Sydney Ideas forum on why history matters, the past and the present. Guest panellists from the US and Australia include our ex-premier Bob Carr and leading US civil war and slavery academics. Then on the 10th of August, we're looking at the creative arts with a lecture by award-winning Australian playwright Alana Valentine. But for tonight, I'm now very pleased to welcome Professor Don Nutbeam, Provost and Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, who will introduce Professor Tata and her work to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Meredith. Um, now, I'm going to use the acronym uh, SETI in my introduction. Um, and for those of you not familiar with the acronym, it means the Search for Extraterrestrial um, Intelligence. And having a conversation with Jill just before we began, um, she did remind me, of course, there are an awful lot of astrobiologists who don't care whether the life is intelligent or not. Um, they're simply searching for uh, signs of life. Um, uh, so there is a very important um, distinction between uh, the work that Jill has devoted herself to and that of many other astrobiologists. Both, um, both sorts of work, of course, extremely important. Astronomer Jill Tarter is uh, director of the um, SETI Institute's Center uh, for SETI Research. She's also the holder of the Bernard M. Oliver Chair for SETI Research. She's one of very few researchers to have devoted her career to hunting for signs uh, of sentient beings elsewhere. And there are a few aspects of this field that have not been influenced and affected by her work. Jill was the lead for Project Phoenix, a decade-long SETI scrutiny of about 750 nearby star systems, using telescopes in Australia, West Virginia, and Puerto Rico. While no clearly extraterrestrial signal was found, um, well, as far as we know, um, this was the most comprehensive targeted research for artificially generated cosmic signals that's ever been undertaken. Currently, Jill heads up the Institute's efforts to build and operate the Allen Telescope Array, a massive new instrument that will eventually comprise 350 antennae, each six meters in diameter. This telescope, when fully functional, will be able to increase enormously the speed and the spectral search range of the Institute's hunt for signals. A subset of the full array um, already has already begun operations uh, since 2007. So much of an icon of SETI is Jill, uh, it's not surprising that the Jodie Foster character in the movie Contact is largely based on this real-life researcher. Uh, and it's with great pleasure that uh, I invite 
this real-life researcher uh, and astronomer uh, to the stage to speak to us this evening. Jill, the floor is yours. Thank you all for coming out tonight. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to come to Sydney, and it's a lovely honor to be able to uh, speak here in this hall tonight. I'm going to tell you about a couple of things that have changed profoundly since I was a graduate student, um, extremophiles and, and exoplanets. And the, uh, the research that's making it appear that the galaxy perhaps is more biofriendly than we might once have thought. So we look out with all of our astronomical tools at a cosmos which is vast and magnificent, and we pose a number of questions. We want to know how and did the universe start? Um, how will it end? And are there other universes? And how did galaxies and stars and planets form? And these are all legitimate questions to pose of the cosmos. And my colleagues and I ask one additional question. We wonder if we're alone. And we would like to find ways to look for evidence of the existence of other sentient beings in the cosmos. When you think about life, stupid life or intelligent life, um, out there, the, the numbers are really fairly compelling. They're large. We look at a universe that's comprised of um, a few hundred billion galaxies, such as these two that are interacting in the slide. And um, within each of those galaxies, there are hundreds of billions of stars. So within the observable universe, there are more stars than there are grains of sand on the beaches of our planet. So it's a very large number of stars. Now, life, at least life as we know it, needs more than a good star. We need planets, we think. Uh, life as we know it is a planetary phenomenon, and by that we mean that, that life um, arose and evolved on the surface of a planet. It was profoundly affected by the environmental conditions on the planet, and life itself actually profoundly affected and changed the planet over time. The oxygen that we breathe today is the result of blue-green algae colonies, stromatolites, inventing photosynthesis and bubbling up oxygen into the oceans starting two and a half billion years ago. And after the oxygen finished rusting all the iron in the ocean, it was possible to enter the atmosphere and transform the early redox neutral atmosphere into one with 20% oxygen, which then made possible respiration as a means of making a living and gave rise to large animals such as ourselves. So uh, we think that planets are necessary for life. And so we ask how many planets, or now, indeed, how many planets and large moons there might be out there. Well, you all know that, that uh, recently we lost a planet. <laughs> more, more public interaction with that than almost anything else that astronomers do. It's really quite spectacular. Uh, and 
the idea of looking for life on other planets uh, or other bodies and other moons takes a special form in our own solar system where perhaps we have the opportunity to go there and do some ground truthing. So the, um, the objects in our solar system that are of particular interest to, to us are, um, are Mars, where we have rovers on the surface long after their expiration date, still chugging away. We have a, um, an, an army of orbiting spacecraft recording incredible detail about the surface of Mars. And then um, we have the Earth's moon, not because we think it is an abode for um, original life, but as a guide to me here to show you the relative size of Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, moons of, of Jupiter. And I guess, indeed, we could say that life may have come to the moon because it's been colonized. There have been at least 12 humans that have worked, walked on the surface. And yes, they did, and it wasn't in a Hollywood <laughs> back studio, right? And that's what we're celebrating today. All right? And then a large moon of, of Saturn, Titan, where we um, now know that there is water as part of the... Um, subterranean slush of organic ices in, uh, in that system. Um, and a tiny little satellite of Saturn called uh, Enceladus. So Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto are covered with ice. But we don't think that ice is very deep. We are pretty sure that beneath that ice are liquid, briny oceans. In fact, in the, in the case of the little moon Europa, we think there's probably twice as much water under the ice as all the oceans on the Earth. Um, and that water's been there for four and a half billion years. Perhaps there's life within it. On Mars, no life on the surface. A cold, barren desert with a very harsh radiation environment. But subsurface, there may be liquid aquifers. There may be life uh, on Mars or at least extinct fossils on Mars. In fact, you and I could be Martians. It could be that life started four and a half billion years ago on Mars when Mars was a wetter and warmer place and that a collision uh, broke a piece of rock off of Mars and that there were microbes housed and protected in that rock as it traveled through space and eventually was captured by the Earth's uh, gravitational field. We know that the biological, the terrestrial planets, uh, Mars, Venus, and Earth, did exchange material early in the history of the solar system. So perhaps life started on Mars and was the res and responsible for seeding life here. So if we find life on Mars, we have another question to ask, which is, is it an independent origin, a second genesis, or is it, in fact, related to life on Earth? Um, finding life on Mars would be spectacular. Either answer to uh, that question would be uh, informative. But the, um, the perhaps 
what we're doing in our search for the uh, within the solar system is is we're actually looking for. Oh, this has now stopped working. Okay, we'll go up here. Um, we're looking for liquid water because that seems to be the gold standard for life as we know it. Perhaps not for other life. And what surprised us is the fact that even that tiny little moon of Saturn has liquid water. We have seen cryovolcanoes from the poles of that uh, moon, and there are organic ices and water coming off of that planet. So these are regions that we could potentially reach in the, in the near future, and we spend a lot of time figuring out how to explore the solar system for potential um, evidence of other life forms because this idea of a second genesis within the solar system will be so important. It's kind of like Avis and Hertz number two in this case um, is, is really the key number. If we find a second example of an independent origin of life in the solar system, it will argue very strongly that life is ubiquitous in the cosmos. It's not going to work. All right, what about other stars and planets around other stars? Well, this is another thing. This is one of the things that's changed since I was a graduate student. We now know for sure that planets do orbit other stars. It was a good theory when I was a student. And uh, this diagram, which is kind of an eye chart, uh, we stopped drawing at the time we knew that there were 156 exoplanets. Um, because the diagram just got too complex. The little yellow balls represent the stars, and they're at zero on the uh, origin of the x-axis. The, that axis represents the distance from the star at which we've detected planets. And the unit one is one astronomical unit, the distance of the Earth from the sun. You can see that there are many planets very close to their stars in extremely short period orbits of only a few days. And the, the surprising thing is that many of those planets are much more massive than Jupiter. So there are other planetary systems that aren't like ours, where the little guys are in, inside and the big guys are outside. We've learned a lot about planetary system evolution by the detection of these planets around other stars. And you can see there are, there are stars where there are multiple planets. So we actually have detected extrasolar planetary systems. So far, nothing that's exactly an analog of our Earth, uh, of our own planetary system with the Earth at 1 AU and Jupiter at 5 AU. Uh, when I checked the extrasolar planetary encyclopedia, which is a really good website to, uh, to keep up on, on what's happening with exoplanets. There were um, 353 planets that had been detected in orbit around 298 stars. Now, most of these planets have been directed, detected indirectly. We've never seen the planets. We've deduced their presence because of their gravitational interaction with the star itself. The uh, most common detection is due to radial velocities. We look at the absorption lines, those dark places where light has been removed in the spectrum of the star, 
and we see those absorption lines periodically move a little bit to the red and then a little bit into the blue. And that motion is periodic and repeatable, and it's due to the fact that a planet is orbiting that star. Actually, to be precise, the star and the planet are orbiting their common center of mass. The center of mass is down inside the, plan inside the star, but just not at its center. So as the planet moves around the star, it causes the star to wobble. And if the star wobbles towards and away from us, we get this Doppler shift, the change in the spectral lines that allow us to know about the stellar motion and deduce the planet. If, on the other hand, the... Um, and here, here's an here, example of a small planet, a big star, they orbit a common center of mass, and the telescope over there actually sees the star approaching or going away from it, depending on where the planet is in its orbit. Now, if, in fact, the orbit um, of the planet is such that the motion of the star is on the plane of the sky, moving side to side, that's an old detection technique called astrometry, where we follow with great precision the actual centroid of the star as it moves on the sky, and uh, that indicates the presence of a planet. And indeed, large planets cause a greater effect than small planets, and it's harder to find small planets. There's um, been a method that's developed recently called gravitational lensing that actually looks at a distant star and detects the presence of a star and its planet, perhaps, um, between the distant star and the telescope without ever seeing the star, without ever seeing the planet. If they pass between the distant star and our telescope, um, they can cause the light, the, the mass of the star can cause the light from the distant star to um, bend around and appear to, to break into multiple images, and the total intensity of the distant star will gradually increase. And over the period of several weeks, as the foreground star moves across the direction to the distant star, the light will brighten and then dim. And if that star happens to have a planet in orbit that's just um, fortuitously aligned, then on the order of several hours, there could be spikes in the intensity of the distant star due to the gravitational field of the planet itself. And so this gravitational lensing is now becoming a reality. There have been about a dozen planets that have been detected by this method, and we've never even seen their star. And we can never see it again. It's a one-time event that we can't ever follow up on. But uh, nevertheless, the uh, solutions, the mathematical solutions, are compelling enough to convince us about planets being there. And the last method that we use doesn't have to do with the brightening of starlight, but the dimming of starlight. So if a planetary orbit is, is, is well aligned with our line of sight, then it will pass in front of the star, and in doing so, will block a little light from the star, and the star's intensity will dim. 
Now, if it's Jupiter passing in front of the sun, that's a 1% effect. If it's the Earth passing in front of the sun, it's a part in 100,000. So here's an animation. You see the planet going in front of the star, the star and the light dimming as it does. So the um, finding an Earth in front of a star like the sun requires photometric precision of a part in 100,000. And we launched in March a spacecraft called Kepler, which is now capable of looking for this sort of thing. Kepler stares down the arm of the Milky Way galaxy into a field that has 100,000 stars in it. And Kepler stares at those 100,000 stars continuously, never blinking. And occasionally it sees one of those stars dim, and it remembers that. And if the star dims again, Kepler says, ah, that time might be a period. So I'll predict a third dimming, a third transit. And if Kepler gets three transits reliably or more, then it, it actually will be able to detect um, the presence of a planet. And Kepler is sized to have the precision to find planets as small as the Earth. And with 100,000 stars, we expect, unless we're very wrong about what we think the frequency of Earth-sized planets are, Kepler should, um, over the next three and a half years, discover a few handfuls of Earths. And we will know for the first time what the statistical probability for a planet as small as the Earth is around a star as massive as the Sun. Now, most of the detections have been indirect, but finally we've begun to see real planets around stars in ways that are um, irrefutable. The, uh, this is an image from the Hubble Space Telescope, and it's taken by putting an occulting disk in front of the telescope. I've just put up my hand and gotten rid of one of those very pesky bright lights up there. And that makes it easier for me to see some of the people in the audience um, in the vicinity of that light. And that's what the telescope does. It tries to puts up a, a disk and tries to block out the light from the bright star, thereby making a, an, a, an area around the star uh, faint enough so that a very low luminosity planet can be found. Planets are not bright. Planets only shine because they reflect starlight. And so um, the Earth and the Sun in the, um, the optical, the contrast ratio is that the Sun is 100 million times brighter than the Earth. Uh, in the infrared, it gets a little better. There's only a million to one contrast ratio. So finding, uh, making an image of a planet around a nearby star is very difficult. Planet is angularly on the sky. It's very close to the star. The star is very bright. The planet's very dim. So this occulting disk mechanism um, works in this case because the planet that is found is quite far from the star. It's in a large orbit. And you can see here, let's see, my laser pointer, is that working? No, that isn't working either. I think I have a battery problem. Um, here you can see that the Hubble Space Telescope took an image in 2004 and another one in 2006, and that faint planet is seen to move 
around the star in its orbit. So this is a, this is a bona fide detection. And there's another method of trying to find planets around stars. When, when the starlight comes through the atmosphere, um, the stars twinkle, right, because the atmosphere perturbs the image of the star. But if you could take an, a picture, a snapshot, a very quick flash look at the star, it would just be in one position. And then if you take another quick, posi- uh, quick image, um, the star position would have moved apparently a little bit because of the atmospheric um, disturbance. If you take lots and lots and lots of quick images of the star and have an algorithm that can reconstruct them and uh, reassemble uh, the images so that all the star images are in the same place, then you can integrate for a long time looking for faint objects around them. And that's what happened in this case where um, B, C, and D are in fact three planets around this uh, small star HR 8799. So here are two in the last year and a half, two really good proofs that planets do exist. Uh, Planets that exist in a region of space that's at the right distance from their star may in fact be habitable because they can have the potential for having liquid water on the surface. That's how we define the habitable zone. So here is um, the smallest planet that we have yet detected, um, which has 1.9 times uh, the mass of the um, Earth. And it is uh, planet E there of the four planets that are orbiting this tiny little star, Gliese 581, which has about 10% of the mass of the sun. And so a planet of Earth's mass can tug on Gliese 581, that very small star, and make a larger reflex motion than it would a star as massive as our sun. And so we have found this small two Earth mass planet um, just recently, just uh, within the past six months. And as we redid the solutions for planets B, C, and D, which were already known, the fact that there was a fourth planet caused the positions of the previous three uh, to change in such a way that D, a, a planet much more massive than Jupiter, moved into the habitable zone. Now, we don't think that planet is likely to be habitable, but maybe it has a large moon that could be habitable. So right now, good planets are hard to find, and we can tell you about one. We think that it's one among billions, but we can't prove it. That's uh, what we're trying to do. And as soon as Kepler or some other technique finds another Earth analog, we're going to start asking questions about just how like the Earth does a planet actually have to be in order to support life. Uh, And, of course, with no data, there are two schools of thought. One is rare Earth. Microbial life will be uh, abundant, and large animal life will be rare. And the other is life will be everywhere. Well, what we need to do is get the data, and that's what astrobiology is trying to do the question about how prevalent 
um, life is and how much like the Earth a planet or a moon needs to be in order to support life. So we talked about the habitable zone. It's this idea of a planet too close to the sun or its star is too hot. A planet too far away is uh, too cold. And in the middle is uh, just right, this uh, so-called Goldilocks approach to habitability um, may be actually uh, coming to an end. Uh, so it may be that life is a, a lot more abundant and able to occupy real estate that isn't just right. And we're coming to that um, conclusion by another set of studies on microbial life called extremophiles. It's the second topic that's new since I was a graduate student. Here are some extreme environments in which life flourishes. Uh, the top picture is an extinct volcano overlooking the Atacama Desert on the border of Chile and Bolivia. There are a couple of freshwater lakes in the caldera of that volcano at 19,600 feet, the highest freshwater lakes on the planet. And they have interesting microorganisms which have developed interesting tricks to uh, shield themselves from the ultraviolet load that they're uh, getting at that height because it's above a lot of the ozone in the atmosphere. The lower left-hand side is essentially boiling battery acid. It's a volcanic feature in which life abounds. The colors in that picture are not due to minerals. They're due to microbes. They love it where it's hot and acidic. And the, the bottom right-hand side is also hot, but it is down at the bottom of the ocean where the crust is splitting open and hot magma is welling up in these so-called black smokers. Enormous pressure, superheated water, no sunlight, and life abounds. So we used to have this picture that was basically developed around us and the fact that we have this vision of ourselves as the pinnacle of life and when we define the realm of habitable, we have in mind habitable by us. But life is far more hardy than that. Life can live beyond the boiling and freezing points of water. Life doesn't have to have a neutral pH. It can tolerate a lot of radioactivity and salinity. It doesn't need a whole lot of water and it can uh, tolerate great pressures and it doesn't even need sunlight. So here are some examples. Um, these uh, psychro, uh, psychrophiles, cold lovers, these are organisms that live within ice and basically they circulate within their bodies essentially an antifreeze. So they're perfectly happy at zero centigrade. Um, they're not even all tiny microbial structures. Here's some macroscopic ice worms um, that thrive at these ridiculously low temperatures. And here are some of my colleagues who I think are the most extreme of the extremophiles. These people voluntarily cut holes in the ice of permanently frozen lakes in Antarctica and dive down there to study the microbial mats that bloom at the bottom of these lakes. The other end of the temperature scale, we have um, a, an organism that we called strain 121 because we found it and identified it 
living at 121 centigrade. Turns out it's happy up to 130 centigrade. How about radiation? Here's the cooling waters of a nuclear reactor plant. Radio Durans Durans lives happily in that radiation field, which would, in fact, be lethal instantly to us. And it does so because it has a mechanism for repairing its DNA. That mechanism probably evolved not as a response to irradiation stress, but rather as a response to desiccation. But hey, once you learn to repair DNA that's broken, if it's radiation damage that causes the break, it's your repair mechanism works just as well. So radio durans durans has quite a bit to teach us. Here's an organism called a halophile. It lives inside pure salt crystals. It's a salt lover. Here's a rock from the dry valleys of Antarctica. Right? Organisms, actually a, cry a cryptoendolithic lichen, has crawled inside the rock, made itself nice and cozy, and is leaching its nutrients from the rock itself. And lastly, these wonderful tube worms down around the black smokers. There's an incredible community of life around these black smokers, starting with bacteria living out of sulfur and phosphorus and, and uh, supporting an incredibly rich biota. And lastly, here's the most amazing creature. This is a tardigrade. This little water bear has been exposed to the vacuum of space. It's been frozen to a few degrees above absolute zero, and it keeps on going. So this is a, another extremophile. And, and this has just helped us to understand that the habitable real estate out there might be a lot larger than what we months might have thought. And we need to, basically, we need to give microbes the respect that they deserve. And we, we do have a scientific understanding of the connectivity and the diversity and the richness of all life as we know it. Um, our, our psyche hasn't quite caught up to, to that knowledge yet, and we, we still think in terms of the ascent of man. Uh, but, but we, in fact, um, are not granted by nature the particularly privileged place that we tend to put ourselves. So when you think about life and you think about intelligent life, it's all a piece of the same story. So SETI fits quite naturally under the umbrella of astrobiology. I just try to do a shortcut to make, take advantage of the actions of the inhabitants to find habitable worlds. And 2009 has been, for all of us, quite a good year. Uh, we're celebrating the 400th anniversary of Galileo's first use of the telescope, the 200th birthday of Charles Darwin, and the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species. It's the 50th anniversary of SETI as a science, and today we've been celebrating the 40th anniversary of making a footprint on the moon. 
And in 2009, we successfully launched Kepler and can look forward to knowing about other Earth-like worlds. It's also the International Year of Astronomy. And in 2009, change came to Washington, D.C. And a young president committed himself to bringing science back to its rightful position and followed that up with a, with a talk to the National Academy of Sciences, pledging something like 3.5% of the GDP for research and technology. What a change. Um, but you could ask, this has been great, but, but what would change everything? And in fact, the EDGE Foundation did ask that on New Year's Day of 2009. They publish an annual New Year's question. And this year, the question was, what will change everything? What game-changing scientific ideas and developments do you expect to live to see? Well, there were 150 contributors whose eloquent prose, prose was published, and four of them said SETI. They said a lot of interesting things. I'm not going to read it to you. But my question is, why only four? I think that's the obvious answer. That would not only change everything, it would change everything at once. And I think the reason that only four people responded with that answer was the, will you, would you expect to live to see? Because SETI has kind of a fulfillment problem here. We can't promise success. And when you take a look at what we've done over 50 years, uh, it's pretty amazing um, to do the comparison. A good analog of asking whether there's intelligent life in the universe and doing 50 years of radio and optical searches for signals is to say, are there any fish in the ocean? And to try and answer that question by dipping a single glass into the ocean and looking at it with your eye and saying, are there any fish in the glass? It's an experiment that could work. Fish, the smallest fish is a millimeter in size, and so your eye would see it. And although you couldn't catch um, large tuna in your glass, there are a number of fish that would have fit into your glass. But I bet that most people in the audience who did that experiment and getting a single glass of water that didn't contain any fish would probably not conclude that there are no fish in the ocean. And that's where we are with 50 years of SETI. We have so poorly explored the, um, the signal space, the physical parameters in which signals could exist that uh, we really can't draw any strong conclusions. What we need to do is build bigger glasses and get more glasses in the water. And that is, in fact, what the SETI Institute and the University of California at Berkeley are working on, a partnership to build the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California, a telescope that will do both radio astronomy and SETI 24-7. Um, as was mentioned in the introduction, um, eventually there will be 350 of these telescopes. Today we have 42 and are using them. This is our future vision for the Hat Creek Valley in Northern California. 350 telescopes spread over this lava valley, uh, all working together 
to try and answer the question, are we alone? And whether or not we succeed in answering the question of SETI, that telescope will not only do spectacular radio astronomy and show us things that we haven't yet come to expect and will be terrifically surprised by, but it will also serve as the pathfinder for something in the future, an international project called the Square Kilometer Array, something with a 100 times as much collecting area as the Allen Telescope Array would have with 350 telescopes, and something that may well bear the stamp of made in Australia, because Australia is one of two sites where the Square Kilometer Array may eventually be built. The other is in South Africa. And the government of Western Australia and the federal government of Australia have been extremely generous in supporting the research and technology and the pathfinder construction on a site in Western Australia to, to try and bring the SKA here. And um, I think you'll have to agree that it looks a little bit like a big Allen telescope array. So, so we're leading the, um, the technology development for that project. So we sit here on the Earth, and we see ourselves, or we should see ourselves, as a fragile island of life within a universe of possibilities. And the one thing that the detection of a signal from another intelligent civilization would do would be to hold up a mirror to the Earth and make us all see that what we are is Earthlings, and we are all the same. And the detection of a signal, or even the discussion of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, helps to trivialize the differences among humans that we find reason enough to kill one another today. And that's the reason that I work on SETI. And that's the reason that in February, when the TED Technology, Entertainment, and Design uh, group gave me an opportunity to make a wish to change the world that they would try and support and help make come true. I wished that TED would empower Earthlings everywhere to become active participants in the ultimate search for cosmic company. Because if we can get the world to participate in this endeavor, we can get the world to change its perspective and to see itself as all the same on one small planet. And so we are trying to do a project that we call Open SETI, bringing Moore's Law to the telescope and the wisdom of the crowds to our search. It has three parts. It starts with the telescope, the Allen Telescope Array, and we need to fill out from 42 to 350 dishes. But now we're right at the point where for the first time we can do our SETI signal processing in off-the-shelf computer hardware. Big clusters, rather than building special purpose detectors, which we have done in the past. So with Ted's help and a donation of a cluster, now we can look at doing an open SETI project, one that publishes our signal detection code as open source and encourages the open source development community to come in and adopt and help us make that code better and more efficient. 
we can, in fact, take some of the data from the telescope in burst fashion, a FedEx truck, a day's worth of data, 40 terabytes of data, and put it in the cloud and provide not only the storage to hold it, but the computing resources to access it. And then with some tutorials and some contests to motivate the technically competent people around the world who understand digital signal processing, we can try and develop new algorithms to look for types of signals that we currently are unable to process. And for those algorithms that work well, we can start another round of contests to try and see if we can make them efficient enough to run in real time on the telescope alongside the algorithms that we're currently using. And we realize that there may be types of signals that our current algorithms or foreseeable, al uh, that our current algorithms do not do a good job at detecting. Complex signals that are weak. Um, and maybe the algorithms developed in the cloud will eventually allow us to do that in real time on the computer. But in the meantime, there are some other pattern recognition tools that we'd like to bring to bear on the problem, and that's the rest of the world. The, um, the world that is not technically competent to deal with digital signal processing, but still has eyeballs. We'd like to find a way to get a small amount, anyway, of the data out of the observatory onto um, fiber and out into a framework in which it can be accessed by humans using their eyes as pattern recognition devices. And then build a support structure that allows them to notify us of detected patterns, to have those patterns verified, to have those patterns compared against an optical database of known interference and vetted and validated until in perhaps information on a new newly detected signal can get back to the observatory in sufficient time to affect the next observation. So we're going to try and put humans around the world into the loop of signal detection. And we do this to do a better job at the signal detection, and we do it to have access to the humans to talk about the story of extraterrestrial intelligence and what the place of humans is in the cosmos and maybe change some perspectives. So that's what my mission is, and I thank you for your attention. Uh, thank you. As um, uh, we aspire to do with the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series, that's um, given us a great deal to, uh, to think about um, and uh, I suspect has posed uh, for many of us here um, quite a range of different types of question, um, some scientific, some moral, some existential, I suspect. Um, but uh, now's a good occasion if something's on your mind and you'd like to ask uh, the world's leading expert um, on SETI Now's your chance, so um, please, uh, if you have a question, can I invite you to come to the microphone uh, and I'll um, allow Jill to uh, conduct proceedings from that point. Uh, so please. Can I ask, Jill, um, what did you make of Jodie Foster? Ah. <laughs> um, Jodie Foster is an incredibly intelligent woman, a fantastic actor, and a very kind person, actually. 
and I hope that someday I get to have her experience of detecting a signal, and I wouldn't even mind riding in a wormhole. <laughs> yes. Um, hello. I was just wondering, you were talking about extremophiles in the context of SETI, um, yet most of the extremophiles we have on Earth are microbes. Um, what do you think the probability is of finding complex life um, inhabiting conditions of high radiation or low pressure or extreme desiccation or whatnot? We don't know the answer to that question. As I alluded to, um, there are two schools of thought. Ward and Brownlee would say that microbes would be abundant, but complex animal life would be very rare. And David Darling, on the other hand, draws from no data the opposite conclusion. And so I think the important thing is to try and get the data. I don't know the answer. Yes. Hello. Yes. <laughs> um, my name is Reid. I'm from the Australian Centre of Astrobiology in UNSW. And uh, I was wondering, uh, what are your thoughts about the issue that <clears throat> we have evidence of bacteria which are very old, from 3.5 billion years old, and it would seem that complex life has evolved only with the start of high oxygen in the atmosphere? And do you expect that we'd find complex life only in planets which have at least 15% oxygen in the atmosphere, or perhaps not? Well, that's a, that's a good question. How, exactly what kind of a partial pressure of oxygen, if any, is required for um, a, a large macroscopic complex organism? I mean, is there any other um, alternative to respiration for, for creating complex life. I don't know. The, um, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. about two years ago published a report on what they called weird life. Right? This is life as we don't yet know it. Life that might use other biosolvents other than water. Uh, life that mm, doesn't necessarily need DNA and might have different metabolic pathways other than the ones that we know about. And, and they surprisingly concluded that that weird life might not just exist on other planets and other conditions, but may exist on our planet. Um, in fact, in extreme environments, it might outcompete DNA life as we know it, and they suggested we should go looking for it. We also should try and grow it in the laboratory. Um, we could have, that life could exist, uh, shadow life, if you wish, another parallel universe in, of life on our planet. And we wouldn't have found it yet because all of our searches for life are based on the, the characteristics of life that, as we know it. And the only reason I bring that up is because these are very eminent individuals suggesting that there are and per perhaps alternatives to the choices that were made um, in the connected life as, as we know it. And perhaps it means there might also be alternatives to respiration for large macroscopic complex creatures. Um, I don't know what it would be, but maybe it's possible. So long answer to your question. Sorry, but uh, basically, I don't know. There are a lot of people looking. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, I have three. Um, would a star be counted as a plant because um, plants die and stars die, but be, with the supernova and um, a white dwarf could almost be counted as a seed, as the super red giant um, forms the seed like trees. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what your question is, but it is true that stars have a life cycle and the debris of a stellar explosion becomes the seed for the next generation of stars. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Um, we're about maybe a fifth generation star in our galaxy. This, our star is pretty, our, our galaxy is pretty good at recycling. And um, if a, um, if the chunk fell off Mars, wouldn't, um, wouldn't the dinosaurs never have happened? Because um, if they did happen with the um, meteor coming off from Mars into Earth, it could form because it, Earth could have not had the moon, but there's a theory where the, a meteor hit Earth and created the moon. So that could be a chunk off Mars. Well, um, the chunk off Mars that I was talking about is probably a little piece of rock, not a, not a big um, impactor enough to, large enough to form the moon. Um, actually, let's, go, let's, let's think about um, four billion years ago, we have a big collision. The moon is formed from the debris. Um, life, we, it's, it's hard to know exactly when life got started. We have pretty firm evidence that it was going on 3.5 billion years ago, probably um, significantly before that. But what started that life? Perhaps what started it all, perhaps the, the, the common ancestor of everything, life on Earth, was a little microorganism that came from Mars and essentially infected the Earth. And so the dinosaurs were the result of that, and we eventually were the result of that. Um, it's, it's a possibility, it, an interesting one, that, that the terrestrial planets, Venus, Earth, and Mars, did exchange material early in the solar system. And if Mars was the place where life got started first, it might have infected Earth. And um, I forgot. <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> Over here. Uh, yes, uh, the I in SETI refers to intelligence. Uh, for the purposes of your research, how do you define intelligence? Ah, that's easy if you would believe it. It's a very pragmatic definition. Intelligence for us is anything that can build some sort of transmitter that can be sensed across the distances between the stars. We can't do anything else. We can't, um, it's hard to detect intelligence at a distance here on this planet. We certainly can't detect it elsewhere. We can detect technology. If the intelligent um, uh, creatures out there can build some technology, that's fine with me. I'll detect the technology. I'll infer the existence of intelligent technologists. Extremophiles 
Are they just a sign of the fact that human life has been around for so long and the, all the popular places have got busy so everyone went elsewhere? Or is a, is a DNA evolution from more commonly known microorganisms? Or is it actually, how do they become? I guess the question is, if there's life on one of the extreme planets, do they start from the very extreme or have they evolved from the nicer areas? Yeah. Um, when you look at um, the, the markers and, and try and, and look at back further in evolutionary time to the last common ancestor, we see some indication that the earliest roots of the tree were hypothermophiles, existed at high temperatures. Um, and we don't, it's not clear whether we see that because that was where life originated in an extreme hot environment, or whether that's where life survived the error of the last heavy bombardment about three and a half billion years ago, and that um, the oceans were evaporated by large impactors, and they had steam atmosphere, and there was some small high-temperature refugia that life survived in, the rest went extinct. And that's why we see that signature at the base of, of the Tree of Life. Um, don't have an answer to that. It also may be that that's misleading. And it isn't really true that the earliest roots were, were hypothermophiles. Um, lots of questions to answer. Slightly different one, sorry, quick one. Douglas Adams said space is huge. If we ever do get a signal wouldn't that be a signal of a, a universe, of an empire that's long dead? Well, why would it be? Um, it could be. Uh, are Shakespeare's works any less valuable because he's dead? They got transmitted forward in time to you, to me. We benefit from that knowledge in spite of the fact that he's dead. Um, but, but why would it mean that they were extinct? Because think about it. If we're going to detect a signal, if detection is possible, it's really only possible if technologies are very long-lived. If technology is short, then in the history, the 10-billion-year history of our galaxy, you're never going to get two technical civilizations coexisting close enough in space so they can sense one another and in time so that they're co-temporal and can uh, discover this brief period. So if detection is possible, if detection occurs, it really means that technology is long-lived. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. That's really the real estate that we're investigating. The, the nearest galaxy is you know, basically a million light years away, and, and we're not realistically searching there. We're, we're looking within our own galaxy. So that's 100,000 years. If technology is long-lived, and it's long-lived in terms of cosmic time, the fact that the message has taken 100,000 years or less to get to us um, doesn't, if they've lasted that long, they're likely to still be there 100,000 years later. That's my answer. On the other hand, they could no longer be there. The message gets to us 
And we do understand and we do have the answer that the laws of physics and chemistry, at least at one other place and one other time, created something that was capable of uh, manufacturing a technology. Yeah. I'm going to ask something on the more moral side of, um, of the topic. Uh, I read a book recently called uh, The Law by Dr. Bill Patterson. I'm not sure if you know him. Uh, he's an astrophysicist. He was talking about a, a group of scientists um, in Sweden who, detect, who were looking for uh, dark matter, I believe it was. Um, and in the book it says this uh, dark matter is so rare you'll find maybe one particle per 100 billion million, very, basically very rare. Uh, in the end they discovered um, uh, many billions of these particles in a very short period of time. Uh, they concluded that it was a, an intelligent signal sent to them by an intelligent species. Uh, in the book, he brought up uh, the topic of the, the moral topics of the, the question. One camp believed uh, that it was a lure, in fact, uh, a trap to determine when a species has gotten to a certain point that it, become, that it could become a threat. The other camp said uh, they're trying to find people who are uh, intelligent enough to be on some sort of par with them. And then there was the religious camp that said, um, well, the Bible says God created us here. Um, in his image, and it doesn't talk about anything else. If, uh, uh, it, if other life does exist, then it wasn't created by God, and so we should you know, run away and hide from it because it's not godly, so therefore evil. Uh, I'm not going to ask for, uh, for the correct answer. I'm just going to ask your opinion. Just to make it easier. Actually, as you were talking, I was thinking, gee, this sounds like the cosmic variant of the tall poppy kind of Australian approach to things. Something raises up and you <laughs> cut it down, right? Um, I don't know. I, I, again, there is an answer to the question. Either um, intelligent life is unique, we're it, or it's abundant and it's out there. Um, rather than asking someone what to believe about that, which is what we've done for millennia. We asked the priests and the philosophers. I think the appropriate thing is to do the experiment and see if we can find the answer. That's what a few of the people in the book said. The, then the question came up, what happens if uh, by doing the experiment and finding out that there is intelligent life, we've revealed ourselves to somebody who's possibly hostile and wants to wipe us out, and the better thing to do would have been to keep quiet. What's your uh, opinion on that? It's, it's equivalent <laughs> to saying if you're in the jungle, don't shout because the tigers will come and eat you up. Um, I think if they could get here and do us in, they already have a capability that's so far in advance of ours that we couldn't hide anyway. And we haven't been hiding. We've been leaking radiation for about 100 years, right? And so uh, it's a bit late. There's, <laughs> if, you, if you don't want to spend 9.95 pounds um, transmitting your message to space because you're afraid that that will attract um, an extraterrestrial who wants to, who's a little hungry, um, then I, I suspect you will not fill the coffers of the websites out there that are offering this service. Uh, we've been leaking. We can't pull that back in. That bottle, that genie's already out of the bottle. I think the question is whether as a global um, effort we decide to purposefully transmit and send signals that are more powerful and continuous 
that actually could change the game. Uh, slightly different question, sorry. <laughs> um, this is a different topic. It's, um, you were talking about the different sizes of planets and water and everything. If a planet, uh, the planet's size in general, if we found a, a solid mass planet um, with water on the surface and uh, from about the, uh, around about the right distance from the sun that happened to be about the size of Jupiter or even larger, would that affect the possibility of life or the type of life on the planet itself? Well, certainly uh, life would be impacted by the larger gravity of, of that planet, and it would evolve um, in, accord, in accordance with that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm certainly not expert enough to, to make a probability to say, gee, with an Earth-like planet, probability is 50%, you'll get life, and a Jovian, uh, a solid mass, not a, not a gas giant, but a, a large body with liquid water, you know, there'll be some other percentage. I, I don't know the answers to that. Um, that's one of the really intriguing things that we stand on the threshold of finding out. Over here. Um, with these new um, direct observations of exoplanets, um, and hopefully Kepler's going to show us lots more places to look, is there actually sufficient light to be able to analyze the compositions of those planets' atmospheres and see what they're made up of? That's something that, that's on our to-do list, our wish list. So when you, when, um, what Kepler will do is tell us the frequency of Earth mass planets around different types of stars. Um, Kepler's stars are too far away for us to individually follow up on the planet. And that's the only way you can get a whole bunch of stars in one field of view. But knowing what that probability is, 10% of G stars have Earth mass planets. Then you know how big you need to build your next space mission to actually try and do the trick that you're talking about, to image a planet around a nearby star and then do a chemical assay of its atmosphere. Um, if only one in a hundred planets, uh, only one in a hundred stars has an Earth mass planet, uh, a terrestrial then your spacecraft's going to be, have to be a lot larger than if the number is 50%. You can look at a lot fewer stars a lot closer to us with a 50% probability and, and be able to be successful in your image and then spend an enormous amount of time, hundreds of days, collecting photons to try and find out whether there are any biosignatures, um, if there are any trace uh, compounds in the atmosphere that would indicate um, a disequilibrium chemistry that might be due to biology. And you have to be careful because there are abiotic things that produce disequilibrium, disequilibrium chemistry. And what you look for will change for any planet, will change over time. Um, three and a half billion years ago, there were methanogens on this planet. We didn't have anything producing oxygen, right? So um, tricky business, really difficult, not a lot of photons to capture. Uh, and, but nevertheless, we're thinking about it. Yeah. Um, being the 50th anniversary of SETI, I wonder if you could reflect on, on the psychology of searching and be brave and perhaps pick some dates in the future as well as like when it started and where we're at now. From the perspective of obviously it's a binary question and if we answer is yes, there is intelligent life, then we're all going, wow, and we have a game changer. But it seems to me that if 
the answer is potentially no, then no one is not so definitive. It's just as a question of the experiments we do. I mean, as you said, we're looking in the Milky Way galaxy. It's got a certain number of stars. We've got a certain number of techniques. And at a certain point of time, we'll have exhausted those techniques, but we might not then say there is no life. We might simply say we need to use other techniques. So I'm just wondering what are some of the major sort of dates coming up and how we're sort of going to react to that in that context. Okay. Um, I'll give you a date if you give me the number of technological civilizations in the Milky Way. <laughs> that is, I can tell you, given the rate of increase in our technical capabilities, how long it will take us to explore enough stars so that we should have stumbled on one of these technologies. Absent that, I have no answer. And I simply um, re repeat the Morrison and Kokoni wisdom that um, if we don't search, the chance of success is zero. And, and so in that sense, though, um, does it get any harder to search or do you continue to sort of still be excited every day pretty much? Oh, I'm excited every day. I might be tired tonight from all the talks I've given today, but I am excited every day because we get to have to see the increase in our capability. Um, in this field, you don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to find a signal today. Because you're going to probably go to bed disappointed on that one. But if you wake up and say, oh, I'm going to figure out a way to do my search better today, that one you can win on. And so I've tried in my talk tonight to, to indicate that an exponential is pretty amazing. And the exponential that we've been taking advantage of in terms of technology is putting us in a place where at least as opposed to that tiny little area that I, ex I explored for 10 years with Phoenix, um, I've now got tools that are getting comparable with the task of searching through the Milky Way for this needle in the cosmic haystack. So, yeah, I, I'm excited every day. Yeah. Um. There was a question earlier about the longevity of civilizations, and I wonder whether there's a kind of related uh, issue with the longevity of technologies that we might be able to detect, detect. I'm thinking, for example, that the period where a civilization might produce a large amount of electromagnetic narrowband radiation may be quite short. Even if the civilization persists, they don't need to be so inefficient, for example, later. Do, is, is that much of an issue, do you think, and do we have backup things that we can look for uh, if, if that turns out to be the case? Um, whether these uh, compressed frequency or time uh, artifacts uh, persist for a long time, even if the technology goes on, is a question. Technology does evolve. There might be a Department of Ancient Instruments right, that keeps transmitting for the benefit of the, the young kids on the block like us, um, or it may be that our, our technology, our ability to look for more complex signals improves. And that's what I'm hoping we can do now, starting with this TED, TED wish, um, to bring in the wisdom of the world to help us figure out, is there a class of complex signals, other than these artifacts that we're already looking for, that um, go through the interstellar medium relatively unperturbed, and come out detectable at the other end. Um, if there is, if nature provides a nice filter that uh, subscribes a small class of signals, we can start doing a better job at, at those. I mean, certainly the, 
the narrow band, the sine wave, the circularly polarized sine wave, goes through the interstellar medium with very little perturbation. Um, but there may be a whole class of other signals that do as well. Um, but maybe it's the zeta waves that we should be looking for. And I don't know what zeta waves are, but, you know, the strategy there is to stick around long enough till we figure it out and then start using zeta wave detectors. So, you know, Columbus didn't wait for a 747 to cross the Atlantic. He used the tools and the knowledge that he had at the time. That's the best we can do right now. And get smarter and do more. Is there someone over there? Hi. Um, your connection to Ellie Arroway in the book Contact has been brought up. But I was actually wondering, uh, did you do much work with Carl Sagan? And can you comment on, on his work in relation to yours and uh, about him at all? Gee, I wouldn't put me and Carl Sagan in the same sentence. They're totally different universes. Carl was an amazing scientist and a fabulous communicator. And yes, I was lucky enough to have him as a colleague. He was a member of the Board of Trustees of the SETI Institute. Um, and we miss him hugely. Um, there is a whole generation of scientists who got turned on to being scientists by Cosmos. And Cosmos Remastered doesn't really look all that much out of date. It was really a spectacular piece of work, uh, inspired people all over the planet. And um, I wish I could do as well as he did. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's hard to follow in Carl's footsteps. We, we miss him a lot. We talk a lot about how we're going to find life, even if it's just microorganisms. Mm -hmm. But what do we do once we find it? Like if the technology develops in the future and even if it's just a microorganism and we can just reach it, but do we go and check it out knowing that we don't know what it is and if we like, get hooked onto us, it, it could bring it back and it could mutate what we have at Earth or we could affect it over there, destroying it. So... Do you know that we actually have a division of planetary protection within NASA in the United States? <laughs> Worrying about exactly this question of forward and backward contamination. And they've actually branched out to talk about, so that's the technical bit. How do we explore Mars um, without destroying the um, the natural life that might be there? How do we bring back samples without threatening life here on Earth? Um, but then there are the larger ethical questions. Suppose Mars has Martians. Suppose they're only microbes, but they're there, and they're happy the way things are. But we decide to terraform Mars because we need more real estate. Well, should we do that? Is that fair? Is that a good thing to do? Is that a moral thing to do? Or if they're Martians, should we leave Mars to them? These are questions that are actively being discussed and need to be discussed. Um, we, it's much easier to deal with the technology of forward and back contamination, sterilizing everything we do, doing our um, exploration of the surface in a way that is retractable, retreatable, and, and not... Uh, not permanent, um, thinking about how we analyze sample returns not on the surface of the planet but in an orbital laboratory to protect if we really think that there's a danger of contamination of, um, of life on, on Earth. Uh, those technical things are easier to deal with than the big questions. Uh, we haven't 
done very well on this planet at letting natives alone in their habitat. We come and, and change it, and it's not always to the, uh, the benefit of the natives. Should we do that again on a planetary scale if Mars is inhabited? we travel, for example, to the moon, aren't like you get rockets to get back off? Wouldn't that cause pollution? Well, so couldn't just even getting there or sending a robot there cause like interference? Well, with respect to the moon, um, having no atmosphere, it is, um, I think there, I don't know, I don't think I could find a scientist, at least in the United States, who's willing to say that it's possible to have um, life on the moon. The moon seems to be lifeless, so it's a question of trashing it uh, or keeping it pristine in terms of, you know, look what we've done to the Antarctic as a research site. We've got more trash there than uh, in the oceans. Um, so, so the moon isn't a question, but Mars might be. Mars might be viable. Mars might already be inhabited. So going there, we've, got, we've left a bit of debris there, right? We've got the leftover bouncy rubber balls from the, the rovers that we landed. Um, there's the, uh, the platform uh, that they came off of. The rovers at some point will, will finally end their lives, and they'll be sitting there as debris. But that, because we haven't breached into a subsurface aquifer, any contamination, any biological contamination that we bring to the surface of that planet is probably not going to flourish. The, um, the UV radiation is so high that it will be toxic to, to the bacteria and biology that we bring. So it's a question of leaving our trash around. Um, but if we get to the point of trying to actually explore the subsurface where there may be microbial life and where there may be conditions that would be suitable to, ho uh, to hosting the bacteria, the, the life that we bring with us, that has to be done in a much more careful way. Okay, thank you. I'm going to get up. I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that... Um, We've basically flogged Jill to death for the last two or three days. Um, I know that a couple of people sat down, a couple of people who wanted to ask some questions. Can, can I ask you to ask them all in one quick burst um, and allow Jill a final word? Um, so can you ask, there's one, two, three people I can see. Can you ask three very quick questions and, and then I'll ask Jill uh, to see if she can uh, string them all together and answer them. So please. Question number one. Uh, my question is... Um, in, I have to feel quite optimistic that we might discover some form of intelligent life or sort of maybe not just microscopic life. Do you think that the sort of popularity of the search and SETI will kind of decrease once we kind of find some actual microbes maybe in Callisto, in Callisto or something and everyone just sort of says, oh, great, we've done it. And then, <laughs> and then so no. what happens then? Now, next, once you find number one? two, there's yeah. number three, four, five, and on to five. You're answering. Come on. <laughs> Let them ask. Mine was just an idea of the time frame, for example, in uh, gravitational lensing when you're doing that. How, how many days, weeks, months does someone spend um, or before they find something? Okay. Uh, a quick one on <clears throat> consciousness. Does consciousness have a role in the uh, definition of intelligence? One question. And the second part was, 
these elusive zeta waves you, you mentioned, could it be some sort of communication through a consciousness process? Okay. Uh, with respect to the Thank gravitational you. lensing, right, there is a network of small telescopes that are operating every night looking for stars to begin to brighten, and then they send out an alert and everybody gets on the same star. It's weeks. Um, consciousness, I uh, don't know how to do communication by consciousness over interstellar distances, plain and simple. Mm. I'm, I'm going to abuse my role here and ask, are we sending signals? I mean, I know we're doing it accidentally, but are, are we um, inviting um, others to communicate with us? Well, there is the, the website that will send your message to the stars if you want to send them your money. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of stunts like the Arecibo message that we sent in 74 when we had a party to, to celebrate the new surface and the new radar transmitter. Um, but indeed, because they're so short-lived, they have very little chance of having a detection occur. So we're not sending signals? No. The, right. Not deliberately, not yet, not until we grow up. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I've been dying to ask that all evening. Um, <laughs> Jill, uh, c can I say um, thank you very much uh, for uh, all of your contributions uh, uh, in your, at this point, relatively short time uh, here. Jill's um, not just um, contributed to this type of session, but has actually been um, uh, a, a terrific stimulus to the local media um, uh, and I think has tried to take uh, the really critical messages that uh, she has about her work in the last uh, um, uh, a couple of decades now um, to a much wider audience to promote the type of understanding that we're trying to celebrate this evening. So I um, uh, really appreciate the fact that um, uh, you, you've um, not only contributed this evening uh, with us, but also have um, made an extraordinary effort to communicate to a wider audience in Sydney um, and in Australia. Uh, and I'd certainly like to thank you very much for your contribution this evening. Thank it's you. my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was <laughs> okay, thank you. Oh, thanks, Jill. By that, you'll have appreciate, everybody appreciated this evening. Thanks very much. We're finished. Thank you all very much for joining us this evening. Thank you.